I want to welcome especially those who are here for the first time today, as well as those who are here for the first time in quite a while. Uh, I see at least two who've not been here for a, a year or so. Um, so welcome to all of you. I have a few brief announcements to begin. First of all, uh, I want to request your continued prayers for the oblate uh, novices who have not been able to make their oblation yet because of uh, travel restrictions. Uh, Alex and uh, Joanne. God willing, they will be coming later this spring or early in the summer. Uh, but both of them are very eager to make their oblations. Please also pray for those oblates who are ill uh, or, or elderly. Um, in particular, uh, Genevieve McDonald, um, uh, let's see, Mike Clifford, and uh, you'll all know uh, um, Al Soli, um, who has been battling uh, glioblastoma for the past more than a year or so. I just talked to him about a week ago, and I actually have remarkably good news. Um, he, he had just gotten back from an appointment at Loyola, and the doctor said the treatment has succeeded far beyond what we could possibly have hoped for. Um, he's not in remission because this is terminal cancer. It doesn't go into remission. But uh, the difference between the brain scans about six months ago and now are like night and day. It's remarkable. So he was hoping to be able to come today, actually, but um, he wasn't quite sure that uh, uh, he had had enough time after receiving the vaccinations for it to be safe. So continue to pray for him. Give thanks also for the, the progress. Two further announcements. We will have an oblate workday, God willing, on May 1st. The rain date will be May 8th. Those are both Saturdays, and the workday would last from terse through uh, sext and the meal. Those who participate would be welcome to join the monastic community at table for meal, uh, provided that uh, we don't have too many to fit in the, in the refectory. We'll see how it works. But um, if you are interested, please let me know. We'll be painting, uh, staining, I guess, the, uh, the fences, as well as some other um, exterior uh, uh, elements of the, of the monastery. Uh, that will be the task for the day. And then one final announcement. Uh, Tony Zmirsky, um, who is hoping to, is, is he upstairs? OK. Um, he has been hoping to receive his blessing to enter the novitiate. He's already been receiving formation and participating in the discussions, but he's finally able to come uh, and join us today. So God willing, what we'll do is we'll end a bit early and make our way upstairs. All of you are welcome to join us, but, but by no means obligated. Um, we'll have a, a brief blessing ceremony and then uh, pray the office of sext. If someone could please uh, just give me a little signal if, I, if I'm uh, droning on and not watching the clock uh, around 12.25. And I'll just say, uh, before I begin here, I ask your patience, as I'm, I'm still new to this uh, role of delivering conferences, and I'm not sure how much material I can fit in. I either sort of prepare too much or too little, so we'll see how things go today. How to read like Bede, Lexio Divina in the age of smartphones. 
I'd like to begin with a few words about the title of this series, which I hope will continue through the end of 2021, God willing. First, how to read like Bede. Who is Bede? St. Bede the Venerable was an Anglo-Saxon monk and scholar from the monastery, the twin monastery of Wearmouth, Jarrow, which is located in northern England, uh, close to the border with Scotland. He lived from 672 to 734, so that's about 200 years after St. Benedict. St. Benedict's life, as many of you know, began uh, in 480 and uh, ended traditionally uh, in, in four, 540, is understood to be the, the year of his death. So about 200 years after St. Benedict's life. In these conferences, I want to propose St. Bede as the pattern of a Benedictine, as uh, St. John Henry Newman called him, and especially as a model reader and a teacher of Lexio Divina. Now, in the judgment of one historian, St. Bede read more widely in the scriptures, the fathers, and secular literature than any other person in the Western world between the years 500 and 900. So this is what qualifies him to serve as a model reader and as a teacher for Lexio Divina. Next month and the following month, I plan to introduce St. Bede in more detail. For now, however, I am referring, him, referring to him more as a symbol of a certain kind of reading and a certain kind of culture. Now, this culture was the medieval monastic culture of the Western Church, and St. Bede was really one of the architects of this culture. It was shaped by the life of St. Benedict, written by St. Gregory the Great, and also, of course, by the rule of St. Benedict. This was a, a literary culture that was shaped by literacy in uh, Latin, the Latin language, both in reading and in, in writing. And it was Benedictine in a broad sense, and that includes not just uh, monks who were part of the Order of St. Benedict. The Order of St. Benedict actually didn't exist until much later, um, but includes, say, Cistercians, uh, Camaldolese, Carthusians, as well as many monks uh, who lived, monks and nuns, who lived before the advent of uh, the religious order, which didn't take place until the early second millennium of the church's history. So. All of, the, all of the monks and nuns in the Western Church during this period of time following Bede's life were Benedictine, even though they may have belonged to different local traditions or different religious orders. Now, there was a certain kind of reading that was characteristic of this monastic culture. And I'm using St. Bede, I'm invoking him this morning as a symbol of this kind of reading. It's captured by two phrases that I will explain briefly later in the conference. Deep reading and close reading. 
deep reading and close reading. Now, St. Bede, as a symbol of medieval monastic culture, leads naturally to a brief consideration of the subtitle I've chosen, Lexio Divina in the Age of Smartphones. Now, this is not just a rhetorical flourish, I hope, uh, an attempt to signal that these conferences will be relevant um, in some sense. Uh, instead, I'm, I'm intending it as an acknowledgement that, like it or not, just as St. Bede lived in a culture, medieval monastic culture, we too live in a culture that shapes us just as profoundly as his culture shaped him. Now, the technology that made medieval monastic culture possible was the book. We don't think of the book as a technology, but it was. It was a, quite a revolutionary technology, in fact. And very specifically, in Bede's case, we're talking about the codex with separate words, with space between words. Okay, this, this was, again, part of a revolution, a, a technological revolution that gave birth to a, a whole new form of reading, deep reading, and we'll look at that uh, a little bit later. Now, just as Bede's culture was shaped by that technology, our culture, too, is being shaped by an ongoing technological revolution. One that began in the 1980s with the advent of the personal computer, late 70s, early 80s. Continued in the 90s with the advent of the internet, and then really has accelerated with astounding speed over the past 10 years or so, uh, since 2007, with uh, the, the advent of the iPhone and the smartphone in general. So just as Bede and his culture are inseparable from the book, so I, I contend that we and our culture are inseparable from the internet uh, and the technology of the smartphone that increasingly most of us use to access the internet. Now, let me move from the title of the series to the title of this particular conference, The End of Readers and the End of Reading. <coughs> this may sound like a redundancy. Am I saying the same thing in two slightly different ways? No. I'm actually using the word end in two distinct senses. The first sense is the one typically associated with apocalyptic pronouncements of all kind. The end is nigh, uh, synonymous with the downfall of something or the, the, the destruction, the death of something. And in this case, I think the evidence will bear out the claim uh, that we are indeed witnessing the end of readers. The second sense of end is the one that we often encounter in philosophy and theology, and some of you will be familiar with this. The end is what one seeks to attain, the object for which a thing exists. 
And synonyms would be the purpose or the objective, the goal, as in the end doesn't justify the means. So this conference, uh, I hope, will examine ends in two distinct senses. So the end of readers, meaning the disappearance of readers, and the end of reading, which is the goal, the purpose, the true goal of reading. So first, the disappearance. How can readers be coming to an end? After all, we live in the age of smartphones, and we're certainly reading more words today than we did 20 or 30 years ago. The text pours onto the screens of our phones, tablets, computers, continuously throughout the day. It even interrupts us in the middle of other reading through emails, texts, news feeds, notifications, and alerts of various kinds. Even more than this, we are constantly reading road signs, menus, headlines, shopping lists, product labels. Literate people read all day long, mostly without even realizing that they're doing it. Now, these forms of reading are shallow and of brief duration. And each of us has unconsciously engaged in these many times since waking this morning, and probably even since this conference began, looking at the, at the, the first page of the packet. But when I speak of the end of readers, I am not referring to those who read in this way. Instead, I'm referring to this. There are other times when we read with greater intensity, duration, becoming absorbed in what we are reading for long stretches of time. Some of us, in fact, don't just read in this more sustained and intense way, but we think of ourselves as readers. Do you think of yourself as a reader? What is a reader as distinct from someone who reads? I would like to suggest an analogy. A reader stands in the same relation to reading as a runner does to running or a painter to painting. Now, I run, but if someone were to ask me, are you a runner? I would say, well, I jog a few times a week, but I'm not really a runner in the way that, say, Father Joseph is a runner. Father Joseph ran cross-country in college. He was a track coach. Joseph is a runner. Okay, I'm not a runner. I run. A reader, likewise, is someone who reads as a hobby, as an avocation, devoting a significant amount of time, attention, and resources to this pursuit. He or she is practiced in the art, the craft of reading. Now, some readers read for pleasure, some for edification. It could even be said that some read as a kind of way of life. Now, our Father Brendan is a reader of this kind. He's one of the most devoted readers I have ever met. Prior Peter once said, reading is like breathing for Father Brendan. He reads widely and voraciously. Theology and biblical studies, monastic studies, ancient and contemporary history, biography, cosmology and natural history, psychology, cultural criticism. I'm not exaggerating here. Okay. Um, a wide variety of types of novels and poetry, 
literary criticism. He's also a talented linguist who actively studies Russian and French and has a working knowledge of ancient Greek and modern Portuguese. Now, as some of you may know, he has served the community as novice master for many years. But during the early period of my novitiate, he took a sabbatical, and Father Edward, for a time, served in his place. During his sabbatical year, Father Brendan says he read 300 books. And he just told me this morning, 20% of those were in French. (laughs) That's a reader. Okay. Now, lest I give you a false impression here, I want to emphasize he's not just a speed reader who sort of skims uh, and skips around in order to rack up another book for his tally. He can read quickly, very quickly, but he can also read slowly. He once spent two years every morning doing Lectio Divina on John's Gospel. He reads different texts at different speeds, a pace and an intensity that is appropriate to the content of each book and his purpose in reading it. Now, you don't have to read 300 books a year to qualify as a reader. (laughs) Um, Quality is more important than quantity. That is one point that you should bear in mind in regard to all reading and especially to Lexio Divina. In St. Bede's age, there were only a tiny fraction infinitesimally tiny fraction of the books in existence today. And careful analysis reveals that his works show a familiarity with about 200 books in total. And scholars can specify these things. Now, Father Brennan is a devoted reader. St. Bede was one of the greatest readers of the early Middle Ages, and he read only 200 books, whereas Father Brennan reads 300 a year. (laughs) So, Quality is more important than quantity. That's that's the point that I'm trying to make here. So, are Father Brendan and his ilk a dying breed? Are we indeed witnessing the end of readers, and why should it matter? I think the evidence indicates that we are, and that it does matter a great deal, both for Lexio and for life. Here's a a statistic. The Nielsen Corporation uh, conducts a media use survey. Uh, Many of you probably have heard heard of Nielsen before. Um, And uh, according to uh, their long-running media use survey in 2019, the average American adult spent nine hours and 45 minutes each day looking into a screen, the average American. Television screen, computer screen, or phone. And this was up more than 1.5 hours from 2014. So five years went up 1.5 hours. And this doesn't even include anything that didn't involve a web browser or a social media app. So the reality is Americans spend more than half their waking hours before screens. Screens command more attention with each passing year, and as a result, there's less time for everything else. 
And this is especially true of quieter, more solitary pastimes, which are vulnerable to being crowded out by digital diversions. Leisure reading, or reading for pleasure, according to, uh, I believe this is a a government agency of some kind that conducts these these sorts of studies, 16 minutes a day in 2018 for the average American. This was down from 20 minutes a day in 2008. And if you remove the elderly from that picture, uh, leisure reading or reading for pleasure drops down to six minutes a day. So nine hours and 45 minutes down to six hours, or six minutes um, if, we, if we count you know, the young and the middle age. I cite these statistics from an excellent book by the author Nicholas Carr called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. We read this book here in the monastery not long after it first came out in 2010. And it was shortlisted for a Pulitzer Prize, last year published in a new edition with an afterword on the rise of smartphones and social media. Now, let me cite a few more lines from this afterword, 2020 afterword, that I hope will serve to substantiate my opening claim that just as Bede and his culture are inseparable from the technology of the book, so we in our culture are inseparable from the technology of the smartphone. Network, the networked smartphone and tablet. So, I mentioned this recent rise in screen time from 2014 to 2019. This is a direct result of the explosion in smartphone use. Uh, of adults and 95% of young adults own one and use it for for between four to six hours a day. There was a study conducted in 2015 of students and staff at Lincoln University in Great Britain. And this study used tracking software to, to sort of track people's use of their phones. The average participant used Uh, his or her phone 85 times a day, with a majority of the interactions lasting less than 30 seconds. Owners tend to check their phones impulsively throughout the day, from waking through retiring. And it's so habitual that people have little awareness of how often they check their phone. (coughs) Now, How often do I check my phone? (laughs) Now, I I use the word my phone uh, loosely here. This is not my phone. As St. Benedict says, no one in the monastery is to call anything his own. After uh, careful discernment, we decided that the monastery needed to purchase two cell phones for the use of brothers uh, who had job responsibilities that required them. Otherwise, we wouldn't have purchased them. As casket director, I am one of them. 
Now, how often do I, do I check this phone? Well, I'm, I'm grateful to say that almost no one knows the number. <laughs> I don't give it out, uh, except to Abby Caskets. They call and uh, notify me when, when there's a delivery. I have, we have to be available all the time for that. Um, but that said, this thing is amazing. I mean, I don't know 5% of the capabilities of it, but it's, it's astounding what these things can do. Um, and I know that for many of you, these capabilities are really essential to your, to your work, you know, to your, your family lives, your, your school responsibilities. So I don't presume to make any judgments, but I find that the case that, that Nicholas Carr makes against them in this book to be persuasive. And I think it's important for us to grapple with it uh, in order to learn how we read now and how it is that we came to read that way. Okay, this is an essential task. If we're going to learn to read like Bede, we have to know how we read now. We have to become more self-aware of our reading habits. I will quote just a bit more about uh, the culture in which we live from Nicholas Carr's book. He says, these studies that have been conducted between 2010 and 2020 are revelatory. They throw into high relief the fact that the smartphone is something new in the world. Never before has any other piece of technology been so entangled with our day-to-day -day and even minute-to-minute -minute existence. Now, this stands in contrast, say, with the television, which you know, people, people have watched a lot of TV for a long time, you know, going back to the, the 40s and 50s. Um, but it's concentrated particular times during the day. Because the smartphone is always at hand, at home, at work, in school, in the street, they are always intruding on our thoughts, and we're not even aware of this. The studies in 2020, after 2010 have reinforced what was already known about the Internet's power to distract the mind, to scatter attention, and to breed anxiety. But these studies also revealed that phones disrupt our thinking even when we're not using them. There was a study done in 2017 that gave a really full picture of this. A team of four cognitive behavioral psychologists studied 500 undergraduates at the University of California, San Diego. They used two standard tests of intellectual acuity. One of them is called working memory capacity, which studies the mind's ability to focus cognitive power on a particular task. And fluid intelligence, the ability to interpret and solve an unfamiliar problem. Now, the only variable in this study was the location of the subject's smartphones. Some students had their phones on the desk with the screen down. Some had phones stowed in a pocket or a handbag. Some uh, were asked to place their phones in a different room. Now, all of them understood that the phone was on do not disturb mode. So there wasn't a question of being interrupted during the tasks.
Here were the results. As the phone's proximity to the subject increased, brain power decreased. Now this is measured by the performance on the test, okay? Nearly all the students said that their phones had not been a distraction. They weren't even aware of it. And a follow-up to this indicated that the, the heavier uh, one's use of the phone was, the greater the cognitive penalty of having the phone close by. So here's the summary of the, the, the authors of this report. The integration of phones into daily life causes a brain drain, diminishing vital cognitive skills like learning, logical reasoning, abstract thought, problem solving, and creativity. This astounded me. Even suppressing the desire to check the phone, which is just a routine and subconscious activity for most of us, can debilitate our thinking. Now, I suspect that some of you may, may still be skeptical here. Um, I know that many of those in this room consider themselves to be, to be readers. Uh, I consider myself to be a, a reader, not like Father Brendan. Um, and we also use phones uh, for necessary purposes. Um, so what I'd like to offer is something more than just statistics and studies, which can be very abstract. What do the supposed effects of phone usage or internet usage look like on a concrete level? To answer this question, I'd like to recount a bit of my own personal history as a reader and especially what happened to me when I was at college during my 20s. So, I learned to read at an early age. I was precocious, and my parents tell me that it came quickly. I, I grew to love reading. And here, I must give thanks to God for the influence of my paternal grandmother, who lived nearby and visited us several times a week in the years before I entered kindergarten. She would sit and read to me and my brother for hours, hours at a time. And then she would lay all the books out on the floor and ask us to point to the ones that we liked. And she would get us to think about what it is that we liked about the books. You know, which one was your favorite? Why did you like that? Then she would, she would consider the genre, the author, the subject matter of the books we liked, and she'd go to libraries like within a 50-mile radius, you know, and find these books and bring them back. Um, and I'm so grateful to God for that early influence. I think in some ways it contributed to my monastic vocation. And as I grew, I, I continued uh, to read voraciously uh, for investigation, largely, rather than entertainment. I read some fiction, but my primary interest was uh, in subject areas like physics, uh, astronomy, and cosmology. 
I was a regular at my local library. I was also fascinated by computer technology. In middle school and high school, I became something of what was called in those days, maybe still is a computer geek or a computer, <laughs> computer nerd. <laughs> um, and uh, I made sure that we purchased uh, a Macintosh computer when those uh, uh, were hot. Uh, we had a modem at, at, at home and I think we had an AOL subscription and the late, later on uh, an internet service provider. But it really wasn't until I left for college in 1997 that uh, my career as an internet user really kind of came into its own. Everyone on college, on the college campus, communicated by email. And there was already some online learning. Computers everywhere, in all of the libraries, in all of the dorms, already, this was in 1997-1998. Fast internet connections. All of my, my favorite magazines and journals were, were launching websites. There were blogs that offered you know, continuously updated content over the course of the day. And I began to spend hours a day on the internet. Uh, sometimes hours a night. You know, sometimes all night. It took a while before I noticed the effects of this increasingly heavy internet use. Um, I said earlier that learning how to read like Bede first requires us to become self-aware. And a key moment in my own growing self-awareness was my encounter with the holy rule of St. Benedict. Do you remember the first time you encountered the rule? What did you notice? What attracted you? What challenged you? What did you find upsetting or, or boring? I'm sure each of us had all of those various experiences. When you read it now, are your responses the same as they were or are they different? I am grateful to have a record of my first impressions in the form of pencil markings that I made in a copy of the Pocket RB, which I purchased during my first monastic retreat back in 2006 at a Cistercian, a Trappist community. Now, I'll just offer a brief digression on the value of keeping records of one's encounter with texts, like the rule, certainly like the scriptures. Um, we've been encouraged in our formation to keep a Lexio journal, and I, I go back through it from time to time, and it's really revealing, really revealing. Uh, the graces that you can see, you know, over the course of your your monastic career, how God was sustaining you in ways that maybe you couldn't notice at the time, but now in hindsight you can. What I did when I went through the rule for the first time is I marked with brackets lines or groups of lines 
that seemed significant to me. Some years after entering the monastery, I had brought this into the monastery with me, and then it was part of my bequest to the monastery when I made solemn vows. I read back through this copy of the rule. Now, what I didn't mark was just as telling as what I did. What I did mark was, I would summarize it by saying, the hard stuff and the cool stuff. <laughs> the hard stuff, the hard stuff like obedience, you know, total obedience, the ready step of obedience in all things, total renunciation of will, asceticism, especially fasting, the life of a monk as a continuous Lent, silence, and poverty. I also marked the cool stuff, and by that I mean those things that seemed countercultural in a way that really attracted me as I was entering monastic life. Um, you know, the the autonomy of the monastery, that St. Benedict wants the water mill and the garden, you know, all inside the cloister. Um, a little sort of uh, ecclesiola, as it's called, a little church, a little kind of Christian civilization all within the monastery walls. That, that fascinated me and, and really attracted me. Also, uh, St. Benedict's emphasis on mercy and hospitality. This struck a chord with me because of work that I had done for a number of years at uh, a Christian nonprofit in a low-income area. What I didn't mark was the stuff that seemed less significant or which I didn't know how to interpret, like the liturgical code or the disciplinary code. Now, I've since discovered that these are very rich and repay close study. Prior Peter has a great gift in opening these, these texts that seem dull or, or that seem uh, uh, unpromising. They don't seem to have many spiritual ramifications, but they do, in fact. Of much more enduring value, now I can say, looking back on this, than what I marked, <clears throat> the lines that I marked were the lines that marked me. In the prologue, in particular, I encountered not just a text that seemed hard or cool, but a voice, a living voice, a wise Master, addressing me personally as a spiritual son. This voice marked me. It left a great impression on me. Through one line in chapter 48, I also found myself marked in a different way. I was measured by this. I was revealed made self-aware for the first time. I'll read it here from the RB 1980 translation with the little brackets around it. 
During this time of Lent, each one is to receive a book from the library and is to read the whole of it straight through. Now, I realized when I read that, that although I read a lot, I never read a book straight through from beginning to end. In fact, I hardly read books at all. My reading consisted primarily of blogs, journals, and magazines. Often these would cite a book, which I would then track down, read a few pages of. If I purchased it or checked it out from the library with the intention of reading it, I never made it through. I would start, I would stop, skip around, follow footnotes and indexes to other books, finally just abandon it altogether. And I didn't realize I was doing this. At one point, some friends of mine who were both avid readers noticed this and they gave me a hard time. They said, you know, you don't read books. <laughs> I want to quote once more from Nicholas Carr because I think he's, he's so insightful. See if this resonates at all with your experience at any point over the course of the past 20 years or so. Over the last few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping my neural circuitry, reprogramming my memory. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I feel it most strongly when I'm reading. I used to find it easy to immerse myself in a book or a lengthy article. My mind would get caught up in the twists of the narrative or the turns of the argument, and I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration starts to drift after a page or two. I get fidgety, lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. I feel like I'm always dragging my, my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. Already at that time, I recognized that there was a connection between my internet use and my changed, my transformed reading habits. And so I began, during Lent in those years, I would fast from blogs, and I found this to be very fruitful. But it really wasn't until I encountered this voice, this wise master in chapter 48, that I found myself called to account for the first time. You desire to live a new way of life. You must learn a new way of reading. 